Let us pray. Almighty God, the fountain of all wisdom, enlighten by thy Holy Spirit those who teach and those who learn. Rejoicing in the knowledge of thy truth, they may worship thee and serve thee from generation to generation. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, lives and reigns with thee in the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. When I read St. Paul's letter to Christians in Rome, it sounds so fresh and timely, and yet also very challenging. Paul begins his story of the gospel at the beginning, not with us, with what we say and do, but with God, the God of Israel, announcing what God has said and what God has done in Jesus Christ. We are glad recipients of God's extravagant love through all Jesus said, did, and suffered, blessed to share his life and the urgent task of passing it on to others who receive it by obedient trust in his grace. The gospel announces that we are who we are through the gift and call of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit, the gift of the Father's loving generosity to the whole world. What matters for the world is that in the life and ministry of Jesus, God has personally entered history, reorienting the destiny of all things under his gracious rule. This is the story Paul tells in the first 11 chapters of Romans, the story of God and the world, which, which shows us what God is up to, what is going on. If we are of a mind to behold the wonder of such marvelous things. My first position in ministry was on the staff of a large church in Raleigh, North Carolina. A big part of my work was children and youth. It was a growing congregation filled with busy professional people who were constantly on the go. What this busyness meant for their lives became rather clear to me one Sunday morning. It was after worship and I was standing out in the narthex drinking coffee and visiting with folks when I saw one of the moms of our senior high kids. Her son had visited the youth group several times and then stopped coming, so I approached her to inquire about him. We've not seen David for quite a while. We'd love to have him with us at our Sunday evening meetings. He would really enjoy being part of our group. Well, from the look on her face, I could tell this was an uncomfortable subject. Her demeanor was that of a parent who knew firsthand what I had yet to experience, the struggle of raising children responsibly in a culture that does everything imaginable to make such a task next to impossible. She paused for a few seconds and then, well, she said, David is very busy with school and sports and other outside activities. Plus, he's been spending a lot of time preparing for the SAT. You know, he has his heart set on going to medical school. And then she added, besides, we just want him to make up his own mind. That mom's answer makes a lot of sense to us, to those of us who have lived in the western part of the world, especially North America. 
It's the American way, is it not? Everybody's free to make up his or, own, his or her own mind. And this is especially true when it comes to religion. It's a matter of personal freedom and choice. As we like to say, when somebody starts to meddle, mind your own business. Well, the Apostle Paul doesn't seem to share our modern and enlightened perspective on things. In fact, he sounds rather authoritarian compared to the conventional wisdom of the church in our time, which goes like this. If everybody gets to make up their own mind, then we need to do whatever it takes to reach and attract them in a world that is constantly competing for their attention and choice. And of course, we all know this strategy works, which is why we seldom challenge it. What I'm wondering, however, is whether the people we're trying to reach even have a mind to make up if the church has not done the work of equipping them for this task. On the other hand, the Apostle Paul doesn't see the church as just another consumer choice in competition with the many other available options in the ancient world. Nor did he counsel those to whom he preached and wrote to just make up your own mind. To do so, as reasonable as it may sound to our modern ears, would mean reducing the gospel from the astonishing news of God's generous love for the redemption of the whole world to just another useful form of religious, spiritual, and moral information. But this is not the story Paul tells. Paul offers an exuberant, passionate example of faith thinking shaped by the story of the gospel. The glorious life of a mind enlisted in the worship and service of God. And you see, I think this is why Paul doesn't begin Romans 12 with an appeal for us to just make up our minds. Our mind has already been remade by the life, death, and resurrection of God's Son, who is the source and the head of a new creation. Our calling now is essentially a matter of directing our attention to Him, to everyone and everything else in light of Him, making ourselves available to the work of the Spirit each day in all the ordinary things we do. And while this sounds easy, it takes a lifetime to complete. Offering our attention each day, taking our ordinary life and placing it before God as an offering of love and praise. Now this is not just a matter of making up our minds to try harder and to do more for Jesus, although this may sound very reasonable. The problem with this approach is that we end up paying more attention to ourselves than God, which leaves us asking questions like, how am I doing? Am I trying hard enough? Am I accomplishing enough? Am I busy enough? Am I committed enough? Am I good enough? And perhaps even, is God pleased with me and who I am? Did you hear the good news? God is pleased with us when we embrace what God does for us in His Son and by His Spirit, which is the story Paul tells. He calls it the mercy of God. What pleases the Father is when we fix our attention on Him mindful the gift of life we share together through his son. 
You see, it is receptive, trusting faith that pleases God and enables our lives to flourish, to grow in grace, in the knowledge and love of Christ who overcomes our ignorance and strengthens us in our weakness. This is how our minds are renewed by the Spirit through the Son for the glory of the Father. I think this is what St. Paul might describe as theological education and spiritual formation. And I believe these are inseparable for him. They cannot be divided. Our teacher is God, the Father who imparts his knowledge and wisdom through the Son by the Spirit's witness and love. By the work of grace, we are reminded, awakened to a whole new way of thinking, a new perspective on God, ourselves, and the world. This way of perceiving orients us to what God is up to in Christ through the Spirit's guidance in the everyday things of life. Paul is saying that a person without gratitude, rooted in the mercies of God, sees the world differently than those who catch a glimpse of the world anew in light of God's gifts of creation and redemption. This ever-deepening capacity for gratitude and thankfulness of the heart is cultivated in worship. It leads to a greater sense of the truth of how things are. One of my teachers was a pastor for a number of years. He tells about a time when the congregation he was serving was going through an extremely rough stretch. There was conflict and division over how they should go forward in their life and mission. He finally reached the point where he'd had all he could handle and he decided to take a one-day retreat. He went off and he spent the day in solitude, taking with him volume one of Tom Odin's theology, The Living God, which is a very big book, as you know, more than 400 pages. My teacher says that reading slowly through Odin's work shifted the focus of his attention from himself to God. He was reminded of God's truth and goodness and beauty, of God's promises and God's faithfulness, God's purpose and will for the whole world, and especially the place of the church in God's life and mission. When he went home at the end of the day, he was of a very different mind. Now, reading Odin didn't provide a quick fix or easy solution for the congregation's problems. Nor did Odin's reflection on the doctrine of God offer a plan of action guaranteed to change or improve the situation. What did happen, however, was that his perspective was changed and his desire renewed. He not only saw the congregation in a different light, he saw the world in light of the gospel which placed God rather than himself or anyone else at the center of the story. We call this humility. It's a gift. Humility means that we listen before we speak. We learn before we teach. And we follow before we lead. This is the kind of theological education and spiritual formation our Lord desires to cultivate in the church which is his body, humanity restored to its right mind. Now, I don't need to tell you that we live in a time of pervasive mindlessness. Our culture has lost its mind. 
Even the value and purpose of our minds are abused and called into question. But even worse is a mindless church, a church which has lost its way, the way of Jesus Christ by which the Spirit leads us into the knowledge and love of the Father. You see, this is why the church has entrusted all of us with this task of being theologically educated and spiritually formed. Remember, it cannot be divided. The church is only in its right mind when it understands itself truly by what God is and by what God does for us rather than what we are and what we do for God. When I was a seminarian, I did what we call mentored ministry in a congregation. My supervisor was the associate pastor. He was retired, but had continued to work after more than 35 years of pastoral ministry. The best thing he did was to let me hang out with him while he worked. You might say I learned by paying attention. What attracted me to him was his mind. It was not only his intelligence, although he was very smart and well-read. What I sensed in him, however, was a mind that was alert and attentive to God and others in the ordinary things of his life and ministry, and with very little concern about his own self-importance. What I noticed about how he went about the work of ministry was, it was that it was done in a manner that was thoughtful, perceptive, responsive, and respectful. When we would be out driving around on the way to the hospital or a nursing home, I would tell him about my classes and the books that we were reading and the kinds of discussions we were having. He would often surprise me with a wide range of his theological interests and understanding, even though he had graduated from seminary before I was born. But there was one thing he would say that I still remember. Don't let school get in the way of your education. Don't let school get in the way of your education. It was only years later that I began to understand what he was saying to me. Now, he was not being anti-intellectual, nor was he telling me that my time in seminary would have very little practical value or use. What he was doing was reminding me, calling to mind what the Apostle Paul writes in his appeal to the Christians at Rome. Becoming theologically educated and spiritually formed, and remember, it cannot be divided, is first and foremost the work God does in and with us before it is the work we do for God. <clears throat> One of the ways I've come to think about this is to see what we do in seminary as a means of grace which cultivates a life of thanks and gratitude. When we turn school into an end in itself, we lose sight of the larger story of God, the mercies of God, which is the source and goal of all we teach, learn, and do. It's quite easy for us to forget God, yes, even in seminary, especially when our energies and attention are fixed on degree programs, course requirements, class assignments, and grades, and academic achievement, professional credentials, curricular evaluation, and assessment. Now, I'm not opposed to these things. It's my job. And in fact, they're necessary. 
But you see, they're not sufficient in themselves for who we are as a seminary community and who we are called to be and what we're called to do in ministry. Now, it's possible to be so spiritual, in fact, too spiritual about such things, that we miss the very human, embodied, and practical nature of the Christian mind. St. Paul calls us to present our bodies as a sacrifice of love, offering ourselves wholeheartedly in the world which God loves and intends to save. In other words, ministry necessitates that we be knowledgeable and competent. On the other hand, it's possible to be so preoccupied with school and academic excellence that we may love it more than the God it exists to serve. In other words, a high GPA or a PhD is not to be equated with wisdom and virtue. You see, this is why St. Paul situates the transformation of our lives and the renewing of our minds in worship. The worship of God which frees us from the sins of idolatry. Sins of idolatry. Sins like excessive pride, harmful desires, and inflated self-love. Sins such as the laziness and busyness and hopelessness that get in the way of our education and our formation. I remember one day early in my time as a seminary student, one of our Old Testament professors was walking across the campus surrounded by a highly energetic and talkative group of students. Someone who saw them asked, where are you going? Professor stopped, pointing to the chapel, announced, we're going to worship God. We've just completed our Hebrew exegesis of Genesis 1. Isn't that wonderful? Hmm? This way of thinking, this perspective, this mind, reflects both a love of learning and a desire for God. They are inseparable. Since we cannot love what we do not know, we cannot know what we do not love. It's desire that guides understanding. Since we seek a knowledge transposed into love of God and neighbor, a witness that is joyful, intellectually serious, expansive, most of all, charity. Theologically educated, spiritually formed, cannot be divided. And the good news is that we don't have to choose one or the other, since this is all of God, who works in, with, and under our teaching and our learning to transform the whole of who we are by the renewing of our minds. Teaching and learning is conducted by the Spirit, a divine pedagogy in which the loving generosity of God in Christ is gradually and slowly over time translated into our very thinking, feeling, and speaking, and acting. This is all the work of grace. A mind possessed by fear and envy and pride transformed into a mind awakened to the immensity of God's love. This morning, our Lord invites us to his table, 
who received the gift of his body broken and blood poured out for the salvation of the world. So I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God that you present yourselves a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. 